Throughout 2017, the Lakshmi Mittal South Asia Institute at Harvard has been working on a major project about the partition of British India. We're crowdsourcing stories from survivors around the world, analysing political speeches and studying migration patterns and the development of cities, among other things. It's a truly multidisciplinary international effort and there's always a lot going on. For this latest podcast, we'll dip into a recent conversation between three of the faculty who are leading the research. Darun Khanna and Karim Lakhani from the Harvard Business School and Rahul Merotra, who's from the Harvard Graduate School of Design. So it seems as though, I mean, is it fair to say, just to make sure I read it correctly, that um, there's less migration into Bombay than into Delhi, right? in terms of absolute number of people. Yeah, definitely. Much I less. don't know the exact numbers, much, yeah, less, much, much less, less. Much less. And Bombay was much more prepared. Uh, yes, because the infrastructure right, exists. there. By default, I mean, not, not anticipating so the So you're, <laughs> from a, obviously they're both interesting, but from a, there's more of a you know impact on, on yeah. Delhi, so that's yeah. where you you would see sharper uh, results. That's that's is that a fair fair reading? It's and fair and the, yeah, it's fair. And and the other so the other the other sort of really interesting thing is just watching the pictures and so on. Watching the pictures and so on, it it's also perhaps fair to say that there are two conduits through which uh, the partition had. Uh, left its fingerprints on urban form. One is the actual physical location of communities and so on. Building out of stuff, yeah. And the other is the, if you will, the organizational practices that were passed on through sex, you know, religion, Sindhi. And morphed into more regular institutional structures over time. Okay. So I just had a, so I grew up in Karachi uh, and as part of the Ismaili community, Ismaili Muslim community, you know, we always had cooperative Muslim societies. That's that. That was the way. So I was just, I was just. I grew up in the Fidai housing yeah. society. There was all these housing societies. So I was just wondering if if that is that form. Yeah. Where did that come? Yeah. Was it pre-partition? Yeah, it's pre-partition. It okay. wasn't invented yeah. as okay. a result of partition, but it got a lot of traction okay. in the way it found its way into the mainstream in in Mumbai. Okay. Uh, because in Mumbai, even pre-partition, like in Karachi, yeah. the Saraswat, you know, Hindu community community yeah. had their own cooperatives, and okay. there were many forms. I think we yeah. could argue that the Bags were also cooperatives, and sure. they were run by trusts and mm-hmm. things like that. Yeah. But the way the the Sindhi community then use that to get allocation for land uh, because it, it, it took a great burden off the government, mm-hmm. gave it a lot of traction oh. into the 70s and 80s. Uh, you know, and it morphed, meaning sure. that you would have um, uh, pre-partition, you would have needed almost, I think, 75 or 80 percent of folks to be registered, confirmed before you could get allocated mm-hmm. land. But as time went on, uh, you know, in a building that had 200 families, you would get four people to form a cooperative, and that right. was it. So it became a business model. Right. So that would be interesting to see how it, it morphed into something else. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And do, 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 is there like a, as, you know, as we saw sort of the, the migration paths, was there a change in the built Environment in, in the sense of like the mm-hmm. architectural styles moving as well. I mean, are you has that been looked at, or is it is it pretty homogeneous? It, it's actually fairly homogeneous okay. because so let's say in Mumbai, 
by the 30s and by the mid-30s and even early 40s, uh, a couple of things happened which were significant and informed the next, I would say, 30 years or 40 years. One was there was massive reclamation and opening up of land, so land mm -hmm. was prepared. The more important thing was that uh, the technology of reinforced concrete had taken uh, root. Uh, ACC uh, had, you know, they made handbooks. They told you that's what time period? Uh, the late 30s. Okay. Uh, and, and so, uh, and that coincide, coincided with a style, Art Deco and early modernism. And so... And that just took over the whole just took over. So that's why all the buildings in Marine Drive, yeah, and you needed pile foundations for uh, reclaimed land. And yeah. so the technology, the, the nature of the land, uh, and then the style... And uh, Nikhil Rao's book, sort of, uh, it's called House But No Garden, looks at mm. this period in Mumbai, not related mm. to the partition, but related to the suburban development. Because ACC, as a company, to promote its own cement, actually produced beautiful handbooks which had plans of houses, renderings of how the house looked at. So all you have to do is go to your contractor and give them the I handbook. Want I want this one. Yeah. And so this perpetuated a kind of sameness. Mm. The difference in the DNA, I would argue, we've got to ascertain this by looking at it chronologically different. I mentioned it in passing. Is the Nagars in, um, in Delhi, the first generation or the first few that occurred were really like camps translated mm. into more pakka houses, mm. more permanent mm. houses. But then later... <coughs> As they began to open up other nagars, so to speak, or the golf links, which was for more affluent people, then they began to create clusters with gardens. As you know, in golf yeah. links, you have 10 houses yeah. around a garden and because the densities were lower. Mm -hmm. And so then it became, began to kind of emulate the garden city idea, uh, which was, you know, kind of... Uh, yeah, lower density, more green, more amenities. Sorry, the other, uh, you, didn't, you, you didn't talk about the effect on, say, Karachi or, uh, or, or Lahore. Lahore, yeah. But it, there was a small footnote that just had numbers of the value of sort of abandoned property, yeah. right, yeah. Uh, which was 10 times yeah. more abandoned property. Because yeah. I think the, if I remember correctly, the Hindus migrating from Pakistan yeah. to India yeah. were generally wealthier than the that, Muslims going right. the other way. That's right. So there's much more uh, sort of empty property, property in, in Pakistan. Yeah, yeah. So I would think that, I'm just conjecturing, yeah. that refugees coming in would be allotted those spaces and there would be less effect. Or maybe there was a, maybe they got the lower stuff and the people... Other people moved, moved up. up yeah. But in general, the, 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 the human stuff coming in, there's more space to put them in some yeah. ways. And so you would see less fingerprints... On those cities. On those or cities, is my conjecture, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm just probably yeah, yeah. triangulating across yeah, the numbers. Yeah. This is not, I mean, I, I don't know how you draw this in, but the, there's a uh, Nikhil Naik, uh, he finished his uh, PhD in uh, computer science at, uh, at MIT and is a prize fellow in economics here. He's taken Google Street Map mm -hmm. images mm -hmm. longitudinally. And as now what? Of, of, of U.S. street corners okay. and can now estimate yeah. sort of degradation or increase in property values right. yeah. using over image time, recognition yeah, 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 over time. Yeah. Yeah. Since when Google Street Map stuff yeah, was being done, yeah. I don't know if Google Street Map is in India, but it'd be interesting it is, yeah. to, to sort of think about. Like you have some very interesting imagery to see, in fact, mm -hmm. the, how if there is, you know, that, that's why I asked the question. Like, if there's a particular style that has retained itself and. Yeah, so you could look, you could you could use that technique to look cross sectionally today, yes. across different what used to be different kinds of refugee communities. Uh, yeah. Be interesting.
Harvard Law School. Um, and I am from Calcutta. Unlike Delhi and Bombay, where you see, even as an uninformed observer, you can see clearly the impact. You see, um, for example, there is still a colony called the EPDP colony, mm-hmm. um, which is the East Pakistan Displaced People's Colony, but it's in Delhi. And it always struck me as strange that there isn't one in Calcutta that mm-hmm. is similarly named or uh, situated. That history is kind of more erased in Calcutta than it in, in than Delhi and Bombay, where it's clearly apparent. In Calcutta, I don't, I don't know. This one needs to investigate this a hunch. Is the bigger impact on Calcutta was the formation of Bangladesh. Uh, it was much louder. That's why the concert for Bami. In, in fact, even now when I go to Calcutta and I'm walking around or seeing the city with architect friends and we walk into a, a building colony and along the compound wall of the building colony, you see kind of shanties of people with things, and you know they quite a matter of fact said yes that was uh, you know uh, in the 70s uh, as a result of that. So the impact on the city's fabric, I, I don't know the reason for that, which is it might be that some of the absorption occurred even in the rural areas in West Bengal and didn't get concentrated on the city in that first round of 47, mm-hmm. and it was in the second round that the impact really on the city's fabric was felt much more. I don't know. This I, one needs to investigate, but again, a hunch. Uh, and I, I don't, at some point, maybe we'll get into I think the problem has been partly getting data. There's been less written about the city per se as opposed to Mumbai and Delhi, uh, and Delhi especially just because all that material is available because the impact was much, much greater. So I'm a fellow at the Weatherhead Center, uh, and I'm working on the Indian labor migration to mm. Sri Lanka, Burma, and Malaysia um, in the colonial period. So I was just wondering, so this must be something beyond the scope of the project itself, mm-hmm. but, you know, so 1937, Burma gets separated from what is British India, and that itself was kind of a, you know, partition for yes. the, it was a lot of There were a lot of people who, you know, came back during that time because of increasing hostilities, and with the Japanese annexation of Burma, you know, there was a huge exodus, about, you know, half a million people came back. Mm -hmm. So I was just wondering, you know, in the interviews that you take from the Bangladesh and Calcutta region, do you you actually see some people drawing parallels Mm -hmm. to what similar kind of experience they experienced, like, Mm -hmm. just five to seven years back in their life? Uh, I mean, is there kind of a story, a narrative, a parallel that you draw? Uh, is there any story of that? You see? The ones we experienced 47 itself are like 8 to 10 years old who are now talking to us. So once in 37, they, most of them wouldn't have even been born. Uh, but there is definitely in, like, in literature, there is often the talk on the east side on how the partition was not just that one partition. It's like continuing partitions. There was Burma, mm-hmm. then 47, which... On the east side, actually went on for much longer than on yeah. the west side yeah. because the border was a lot more porous, and then which sort of culminated into the seventy-one crisis, and then that's when the borders sort of started getting more uh, strict on on the on the east side. So I wouldn't say we've got any specific stories where people have talked about a Burma experience and then Bangladesh India experience, and part of it is. I really think is the age as well. My name is Priyasha. I'm a doctoral candidate at the law school. Uh, my, my question is for Professor Mehrotra. Um, I was interested in, your, in the bit about uh, the new types of property rights which you, or, yeah. or the changes, and I was wondering if you could speak more about that. Um, and, like, I mean, do you mean the property rights became more formal or is it about land titles or any, any yeah, comments? We haven't yet drilled deep enough into it, but just the implications of the safe zones, what do they mean, how do you suspend... Or how do you create 
even short-term definitions uh, of ownership, for example, uh, also the allocation of the vacuum properties, that would be just interesting to mm -hmm. look at because there is documentation there. Uh, and so just to try to draw from that implications, you know, these are, uh, let, let's say, I mean, this is something we discussed in a class yesterday, Tarun and I, that uh, how permanent are governance structures? We sometimes get locked into it. Mm -hmm. So even this notion of property rights that gets suspended after a time or it has a life of a particular period, uh, and how it can be formulated is just interesting to explore. So right now we are flagging it out as an interesting conceptual question, uh, but haven't yet actually dug enough into each one of these things that we flagged out to see what we might draw from it. My name is Anushka. I'm a master's student at the School of Public Health. I'm wondering whether the, this project is going to expand to look at um, the impact of the partition on commercial enterprises or businesses during the time, um, and the reason why I bring that up is because um, I guess my grandparents also uh, moved to India during the partition of India, and um, the stories I hear from them are always about the kind of changes that they went through in terms of um, employment and, and um, the, the whole business side of things. So I'm wondering if there's the there's some expansion. So I, I can comment on uh, comment on, on on the question. I mean, in the interviews, uh, there is a fair amount of information about uh, people's livelihood. You know what their families were doing before they migrated, if they migrated, and what happened to them as they reconstructed their lives in the destination that they ended up in. Um, and my dominant impression so far from these four hundred plus interviews is that there was a remarkable amount of recreation of whatever. Uh, whatever you did in the past, mm -hmm. uh, not just because of, that's obviously your skill set, and so you tended to kind of look for the same sorts of opportunities, but also because that was your network, and you knew certain people, and you had these professional affiliations, and you ended up recreating. What's also very interesting that the social hierarchy seems to have been recreated in the destination, right? So if you were kind of more upper caste, you ended up again being recreated as upper caste. So that that robust... Uh, hierarchy was never shaken even by this traumatic event. So that's one observation. Second observation is about the structure of the project, uh, going back to you know the way the Satish Institute runs these things. We're a very open platform. So um, you know we've started talking about our preliminary work in different places. There may be, uh, so these were two different strands that you saw here. There may be another four strands of different people doing different things. Uh, some are a lot further along than others. Uh, lately, we've had uh, artists coming out of the woodwork from the British Museum and Peabody Essex and MFA and the Metropolitan. They have their own way in which they're talking about the representation in art of the partition. So that's become another you know piece of work. Um, we have uh, so you know anybody can join. So the way we do it is we just anybody can join the project and say. I want to participate in this community and uh, exchange ideas. And, uh, you know, it's been remarkably informative even in these early days. So that's a long-winded way of saying that if somebody was to study this, they would be most welcome. Uh, but currently there's no specific project that's focused on, uh, you know, commercial enterprises. Anyway. But it's a, it's a very interesting proposition. I mean, I think you can imagine, yeah. you know, I mean, I think we're getting sort of this, this very small sample, but you can imagine the studying if, in fact, you know, both identities and professions and business establishments 
changed or not. Okay. There's an exogenous right. shock in many ways. But actually, like for an economist, yeah. this is like the dream, right? But but the question is like, where do we get the data in terms of being able to look at the pre-post? So there, you know, there are there are a lot of uh, uh, not a lot. There are a fair number of uh, studies that. Uh, social scientists have done on the partition of British India. Obviously, for the last 70 years, they've been analyzing this. But it's not a new phenomenon. Um, uh, but the way I would describe it is they're very insightful, but they're very specific because obviously all the characteristics of a good study design have to, you know, cooperate to do a, you know, very detailed analysis. So that's one kind. And then there are sort of historical and anthropological uh, exercises which have their own metier and their own rhythm and narrative that are very different. Um, uh, I mean, for me, one of the things that um, uh, methodologically is just if we can just uncover data that are just not recorded anywhere, uh, that I think is very cool. Uh, because I think in the fullness of time, if you get, let's say, 10,000 of these, uh, 10,000. <laughs> 10,000 or 20,000 of these and you leave them in the public memory, people will use it eventually. Uh, and there's no reason that why we should be constrained by data that's, you know, in the printed form, which is how we all think. Uh, my view is that that era is already long past and now data is available in just about any form. So we're trying to encourage our social science friends to think a little bit more eclectically about what constitutes data. There isn't actually all that much written data available, like original part data on the partition, because you do have to realize this was a time when the two countries were actually setting up governments. So a no lot of this information yeah. isn't actually there written anywhere. That exists only in the memories of people who actually experienced it. So we might, you might find things that that you just can't find in a government document, unlike in most other cases where there's a lot more government documentation, which would be done for an event like this. But because of the absolute chaos that was there at that time, um, that's also part of why it's exploratory in the sense that you don't really know what the data is that's existing out there in some ways. Um, my question was about sources um, in terms of your study, if you're going to look beyond interviews. Um, I've recently seen people, as you said, a lot of this can be crowdsourced. And so just on Facebook, people who yeah. have pulled up archive um, information from All India Radio yeah. and their broadcasts, uh, and the kind of information that was yeah. being um, sent out about camps, movements, um, the creation of the new Pakistan yeah. um, version of um, the, radio. the government-run radio program. Um, they've pulled out contemporaneous newspaper articles about population movement and camps and services that are available and, um, and have also found uh, reports of mass, uh, really violent incidents on the eastern border that previously, like, I was also unaware of, despite having studied history there, <coughs> that August 16th and 17th actually faced, like, mass murders on that border, um, akin to the ones we hear from from the pa Punjab border, but not as well documented or memorialized mm -hmm. so far. So I was wondering if you're planning to, or at, at least intending to expand to those kind of sources, because most most of these papers actually maintain archives of their mm -hmm. print editions from those days. Mm. Um, and that's what people have been sourcing so far. 
Um, I mean, it's a very good it's a very good thought, and I'm aware of the the radio archives also that go back. Uh, they're not easily searchable, but um, uh, well, they're extremely difficult to search. But even so, they are. I mean, one of the things that with the app we're hoping to do is to not not but in the same in the same spirit is to uh, encourage people to upload photographs uh, and other memorabilia. Like there was a picture that. You know, for tailor scissors, some some tailor you know had his scissor from the partition time. Uh, I don't know what to do with those things, but you know, it's just I, we're just casting the net widely in some ways. Yeah, yeah you know, Jennifer Leeming, one of our colleagues, has said, you know, like this. Once we have this critical mass, you could go after targeted questions, which is like identifying refugee camps that that are smaller, that are typically not in the radar, and and using this network to to surface that, or memorabilia in terms of you know train tickets or whatever that can actually provide this type of um, uh, of documentation. And I think I think part of it part of it for us has been let's establish the network um, and get the get this sort of primed, and then hopefully uh, specialists in the fields can can utilize what we what, what we're putting together here as well. Early on, I was seeing, you know, through the oral stories, you were getting some of the more granular detail about mm -hmm. the camps and, you mm -hmm. know, when people migrated from one camp to mm -hmm. another, what they carried with them. And then you started to show how you're expanding and looking at gender and the caste of people of the class. And so the question is for you, how do you draw or are you drawing a perimeter around all what of data? this data that you're getting from oral stories and do you want to stay just on the quantitative side, or do you want to also talk a little bit more about the qualitative? I'm a, I'm a failed qualitative researcher, so uh, <laughs> I would I mean, look. I think I think I think the, the the broader notion is that this is this is going to be an open platform, right, an open archive. So you know, we will write whatever initial papers we might write from this, but but the. I think the more uh, categorization of the interviews and the people that we interviewed that we can do, the better off we're going to be for future work. Because if somebody feels like there is a particularly interesting gender story to be made here, great. Right? I'm not the one to do that. Uh, I don't think the room is either. But I think part of our hope is that this creates a public good for researchers uh, to do what we're doing. Because right now, the, the, all the other archives are locked up. Uh, and proprietary, and I think we're both doing this as an open collection, but also as an open archive. There's one big boundary condition, though, which is I still don't know how to deal with the privacy and ethics issues of accessing, uh, you know, uh, traumatic uh, expositions of trauma in some sense. And there's a lot of uh, uh, scholarship from uh, mental health and psychiatry and uh, traumatic events in general that talks about how to do this. And, you know, there are other, other horrific events like the Shoah uh, Holocaust Museum, not museum, Holocaust archives in, uh, in California, where they are, it's a public good, but it's very difficult to get access to it. You have to go through a lot of hoops uh, so that you don't end up misusing. Because uh, you could just easily imagine somebody taking a snippet of a statement that a Hindu made about a Muslim or a Muslim made about a Hindu and excising all the side stuff and it becomes an inflammatory tweet, right? 
so then you know you're then you end up being responsible for something like that so i the boundary condition to so i'm 100% with kareem on this should be a public good but the boundary condition how to do that is not at all transparent to me uh, so we're collecting it and we're saying we're going to make it a public good but who the heck knows how to do it i have no idea i have two questions one is specifically for kareem which is more theoretical uh, do you think this model could also be helpful in political theory especially governance in terms of uh, getting ideas from people for governance yeah look i think you know there's been a there's been a failed attempt at crowdsourcing a constitution in iceland mm-hmm. uh, yeah. and uh, we're learning why it's failing uh, mm-hmm. beth novak at um, at nyu has the gov lab which i'm working with mm-hmm. on bringing these ideas into governance yeah. uh, you know we have some fairly complicated organizational structures emerge out of these kinds of bottom up organizing you look at linux or you look at wikipedia um so there's a lot of hope but uh you know we have yet you know the, what's nice about both wikipedia and linux is that there there is some degree of objective truth to be to be to be tested on right so the the story in the in open source has been always been like there's a there's a village idiot in all open source communities yeah. which is the compiler you can't argue mm-hmm. against the compiler you compile your code if it doesn't yeah. work it doesn't work in matters of governance there can be legitimately different opinions about the right forms of governance and so well i think my question is a bit more i think is that representative idea of representation is 200 years old world has moved on it actually has become obsolete so new institutions <laughs> i i don't know i don't know I, again i'm not a political theorist i'm just a very narrow <laughs> he has no idea i have no okay. idea no, all I, right my second question is the one for you i also have no idea oh, okay. <laughs> sorry no that is all in terms of proper uh, proprietorship of these stories i was in mm. uc berkeley talking to gunitha mm-hmm. This there, is a lady who has an archive that she's been putting together yeah, very nice. And yeah. there the university was having some legal issues hmm. that who do these stories belong to. Yeah. Yeah. So in fact we had an organization in India working with them mm-hmm. and they stopped working with them. Hmm. Because UC said that these stories belong to them. Belong to the university. Yeah, university. I and see. we were saying no, these stories belong to the people to whose stories they are. um so we haven't had that conundrum pop up um yet uh, i think part of the complication with the with the with the berkeley stanford collection the gunita uh, effort which is a wonderful effort she's she's dedicated 10 years of her life to putting it together um is that uh, uh, i think it has to find a way to be economically self sustaining and so at some point it's going to have to find a way to monetize the stories and that's the problem because once you start doing that then people say this is mine or this is yours mm-hmm. and who owns this and so on um we don't plan to do anything like that we plan to just keep it uh, at harvard um uh, you know we're going through all the protocols to make sure that our uh, um uh interviewers are trained in particular ways and that people give consent and so on so at least it's a legitimate property of the researcher uh just as any other data that we might collect 
the properties of the researcher, but under the auspices of the university environment. So in that sense, it's no different from anything else. Um, I think it would be problematic, ethically and legally problematic, if uh, Kareem went and stood in Harvard Square and tried to sell the story. Um, that would be a problem, but um, that's not our intent. So he might, you never know. So. <laughs> <laughs> I might get desperate, yeah.